Luke chapter 8. Uh, I'm going to read verses 9 and 10 and then have us jump down to 16. This is the word of Almighty God. Then Jesus' disciples asked him, saying, What does this parable mean? And he said, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables that, seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Verse 16. No one, when he has lit a lamp, covers it with a vessel or puts it under a bed, but sets it on a lampstand that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. Therefore, take heed how you hear, For whoever has, to him more will be given, and whoever does not have, even what he seems to have, will be taken from him. Then his mother and brothers came to him and could not approach him because of the crowd. And it was told him by some who said, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But... He answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So far in the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do ask that you would enlighten our minds further in this hour in the knowledge of Christ and in the understanding of what he would have from us. We ask that we would not only be hearers, but doers of the word. And so, Lord, instruct us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke's gospel, remember, is given that we might be Certain. You all ought to be able to say that by now. Um, but I, I found that somewhere along the way I wasn't reminding us of that each week. And uh, I think it helps to approach every chapter, every verse, saying, What am I to be certain about? There are a lot of different things said about Christ, not contradictory different, but just uh, rich tapestry of Christ given in Luke. And we're supposed to be certain of all of this, all of whom he is presented to be in the gospel. But we're also to be here in this text, we're told, not just made certain, but be made so certain of what we find in the gospel of Christ that there is a certainty that goes forth from us to the world. Uh, that we are to be made so certain about who Christ is that the world looks at you and is not unclear that you believe the gospel. That the world look at you and not be unclear of whom you believe Christ to be. 
The, the certainty isn't to be hidden. We, we read in verse 10 just now, that's why I had us reread it, that Christ told his disciples he was teaching in parables so that some would not understand. That the parables themselves were Christ's way of concealing the gospel from some. Making it uncertain to their unhearing ears while making certain to others. And, and we thought about that last week, and that can be a hard thing to get our minds around. Why would Christ not make it clear to all? But here, we looked at that last week, but he uses this phrase in verse 10, the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And in our sin, we might take Christ saying these things about the parables and saying to you disciples, the mysteries have been made known, and we might say, ah, a secret knowledge. We have arrived, and we have earned this place of a secret knowledge. And lest we think that is what he means by the mysteries of God, which are theirs, the apostles, and through the apostles are ours, lest we think that these are to be hidden here in 16 through 21, Christ teaches us that the mystery of the kingdom is not intended to be kept a secret. The mystery of the kingdom, ah, the foolishness of this to the world, right? You receive a mystery, but you're supposed to make the mystery known. A lot of pagan religions in Christ's day had a uh, the Greeks and the Romans would call it a Gnostic knowledge, a special knowledge. You would have the elite tier, right? You, maybe you're a member of this religion, but then you can pay extra for the platinum package. And you have the, the elite knowledge, or maybe you're one of the leaders. So you have the elite knowledge, the secret knowledge. And the foolishness of Christianity in that context was that the teaching, as we see here, is that that knowledge delivered is to be made known to everyone. This is a secret you're supposed to whisper in everyone's ears. That's what our passage is saying here. Christ used the parables to conceal, but he had no intention that you and I conceal Christ from the world. And so... As our calling is to be light bearers in 16, we are warned to hear diligently. That's the message. Your calling is to be a light bearer, therefore hear diligently. Whether that's hearing the reading of the word, reading it yourself even, or whether it's hearing the preaching of the word in worship. Hear diligently, because you are to be a light bearer. Let's just unpack this a little more and reflect upon it a little more, thinking about the, the parable, the warning, and the example that we're given here. The parable he gives is this very basic imagery, isn't it? Children, you, you can, I, I hope... Uh, envision and understand this 
simple imagery of a light. Envision being awake in the middle of the night and the room is dark and you ask your parents to put on a light for you so you're not afraid and your parent turns on the lamp and then takes a big woolen blanket and throws it over the lamp. And now the room's just as dark as it was before. It's no brighter. And when you complain about that, your, your father says, The light's on. I gave you what you asked for. But you can't see it, can you? The, or maybe the trash can went over the top of the lamp. You, you can't see any more light than you did before. The light being turned on is no more useful with that blanket or that trash can on it than if it had never been turned on in the first place. And that's what Jesus is saying about not being a light, not sharing our faith, not living out the gospel, not both hearing and doing what we're told when we listen. He says, it's like turning on that lamp and throwing the blanket over the top. You're still in darkness. The world is still in darkness. You're hiding it. It's a waste. It's a waste of electricity. If you're using a candle, it's not, it's not very safe, is it? This is just foolishness. Christ says, you don't do it. People who do are foolish. People who do are pointless. And that's what he's saying to us if we are hearers of the word and don't live that out. The mysteries of the kingdom are not meant to be a secret. Verse 17, in fact, challenges us with this thought, for nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be made known and come to light. What is Christ reflecting on? He's pointing us to the final day. He's pointing us to the fact that all things will be exposed and made clear one day. In fact, in a few chapters in Luke chapter 12, he will speak of what is done in the dark being brought to the light. And so with this parable, he's saying to us, every knee will bow, every tongue confess, all will know the gospel in the end. Make it clear to everyone now. For the world in darkness, don't, don't think that your job is to leave them in darkness and it will be revealed on the last day. Shine now so that they might know it now and not merely on the last day. The parable calls on us to shine forth. Or I think we could put a same point into the language of the parable we looked at last week. These two things go together, actually. This parable is actually Christ's finale to the parable of the soils. Why did he change imagery? It makes the point even more, doesn't it? If you have two images to think about. But let's think about the imagery of last week's soil analogy. Imagine 
calling something good soil as a farmer. Imagine being a a farmer and you put uh, blood, sweat, and tears into that field. Time and energy. You plow, you pluck weeds up, you do all this labor, you sow the seed, you come to the harvest time, and it's a completely empty field. No crops, no corn, no wheat. What farmer will look at that and say, well, this is good, good soil. You can tell there aren't any thorns in it. And it isn't rocky. This is great, great soil. Of course not. Good soil, as we read last week in verse 15, good soil produces good fruit. Good soil produces a harvest. And if it doesn't, it isn't good soil. It's the same imagery, isn't it? I'm sorry, it's different imagery. It's the same point. That now Christ uses the light imagery for. It isn't a lit room. If you turn on a lamp and then block all the light from the room. And Christ, Christ would have us shine forth as lamps in this dark world. Not hiding the gospel here, just among we who come to worship God. And then hiding it from all others as we go out into our week. But rather to shine the gospel light into the darkest corners of this culture. It comes with a warning as well, verse 18. Not only, not only what I've already alluded to, verse 17, that one day all will be brought to the light. In one sense, as I said, that's pointing us ahead to the last day, that everyone will know on the last day. But notice what it says about us on that last day. On the last day, it won't simply be that all will know the gospel, even those condemned. It will also be that those who have hidden the light, it will be exposed who they are, that they have done that. But also, more than that, it will be exposed whether there was ever light in their hearts or not. And that's what verse 18 warns us about. Therefore, take heed how you hear. For whoever has, to him more will be given. And whoever does not have, even what he seems to have, will be taken from him. Noticing the language of that verse is important. Because it's not a verse that's talking to us about losing one's salvation. Do you see what Christ is warning you about? He's warning you about not having been saved at all. What seems to have been had by you. Seems is not a reality, it's a false appearance. What you seem to have had, if it's not real, it will be taken away. So this is a strong warning to the person who makes an 
outward profession, but there's no inward faith. The outward profession isn't enough. Now, what does that person seem to have with their outward profession? Are there things that someone who makes a profession of faith with no internal faith gets that might be taken away? The answer is yes. There are benefits that are earthly and temporary to a false profession of faith, not spiritual and eternal. People make false professions of faith. And for example, they might be under that false profession of faith brought into church membership. They enjoy a false sense of assurance because they've been acknowledged by others to have made a profession. They're referred to by others as brother or sister. They have an earthly fellowship. They don't have the eternal, spiritual, Holy Spirit created unity, but they have the outward form of that. A fellowship in, in a world where we so often feel lonely, where people are looking for a, a group. Many false professors find their, their group and a group of people who might love them exceedingly, do many things for them, make them meals, check on them when they're sick, visit them in the hospital, uh, give them money when they're in financial straits, right? There are a lot of those benefits that you that you get when you've made an outward profession and you're in the church, the visible church, you get to partake of the Lord's Supper and all the lie that you can create for yourself about that meaning you have the spiritual reality as well, right? There are a lot of things that an outward profession that doesn't have the inward reality might temporarily have that would create good feelings and even comforting feelings. And Christ says that too will be taken away. It might be taken away in this life as your lack of faith may eventually come clear to yourself and you acknowledge it, might become clear to the church and you are disciplined, whatever the thing might be, but at the very least on the last day, a false professor, a false believer who has fooled everyone in this life on the last day will not have eternal comfort and eternal fellowship with the believers in Christ because that will be taken away. They never had the inner reality in the first place. Verse 18. That is a heavy warning. We all ought to examine ourselves. It's also a warning to those who are backslidden or in a, in a time of rebellion True believers can backslide, sometimes so much that as far as we look at them as the church, we say we don't think they ever were a Christian as far as we know. And sometimes they were. They're just backslidden and fallen in sin. And then, too, things that seemed to have been had can be taken away. I think I've used this example, this story before, but I think it's a very powerful one. I know a man who for a while was an elder in a gospel-proclaiming church. 
He was among the elders, a very respected elder. He had a clear mind for theology. He enjoyed reading Edwards and Spurgeon and people like that and and was able to express doctrine in a clear and concise way so that all the other elders as well uh, had a high regard for him among themselves as one who could teach. Sometimes he even uh, on occasion would uh, do the evening service for the pastor when he was sick. Maybe he would uh, give a short message himself or maybe he would take a Spurgeon or an Edwards sermon. I remember a few of these and he would take the best quotes and in between the best quotes, he would unpack what the original sermon was saying in a very clear, concise, modern way. It enriched people. And, and then he backslid. He abandoned his wife and his children. He got engaged in an affair. He left the church of Jesus Christ. He was uh, firm in his sin for a number of years. He was excommunicated. And contact was lost. Because, not because he was excommunicated. Because he broke the contact first. But years later, years later, one of his children was in the hospital. And so he went to, to visit and bumped into his now ex-wife, the woman he'd sinned against so much. And they talked and she discovered to, to her joy that he had repented and that he and his new wife were in the church again and believers again. But he made a comment to her. He said, I know that there are things I once knew. That I once taught. They're just blank spots in my mind. I can't remember them. And when I try to understand them. It's a real struggle. I don't know if I understand them anymore. I think that's a very shocking example of what someone seemed to have had being taken away. Now, now his ability to teach theology wasn't his salvation, was it? This repentant man, whom I pray we will all see in heaven, But there was still something taken away because his light was hidden both from the world and himself as he fell into sin for a period of time. We need to take heed how you hear, we hear, how we listen, how we read the word. Christ could not say it more strongly, could he? Take heed for what you have I could take away. So how do you hear? Think back to last week in the soils. Every time you come to worship and hear the preaching, every scripture we read, Old and New Testament, as well as the call to worship and the benediction, as well as the sermon text, every time you pick up your Bible on your own during the week, how do you come to it? What soil is being put forth for the seed to fall upon. 
And then what do you do with it? Do you bear good fruit and try to hide it away? Or do you let that fruit go forth, that light shine? The warning is very strong. If the warning is strong, though, the example is made very strongly as well. You see, Luke, by inspiration, puts an event that happened sometime during this part of Christ's ministry beside this parable. We may think Christ is giving this warning to others, but sometimes isn't there, isn't there truth to this? Sometimes we think we are in a special circumstance. Maybe it's because of who our parents are or were and what house we were raised in. Maybe it's because of something else. What that warning says to others, there's leeway for me. And so Christ puts before us the story of his own mother and brothers. Remember Mary? Mary, the favored one of God, an angel said so. Mary, who was used by inspiration to give us one of the most amazing prayers of adoration and praise in the, in the history of the world. Mary, who treasured up in her heart what the angel said, what, what by inspiration Elizabeth and John and Zacharias and Simeon and Anna and her own inspired voice said as the word of God. She treasured these things up in her heart. At one point, she was the epitome of what we should all desire to be as hearers of the word treasuring them up in her heart. But here in this text, Christ hears people refer to her as his mother, and he says, no, no. In contrast to her right now, those who hear my word and do them, they are my mother. What a shocking statement. Or take his brothers, they're... they're, we believe were four brothers, younger brothers of Christ, uh, the, the, the half-brothers, of course, same mother. I was going to say different father, but we could say in terms of human, they had a father. But, they had, but Jesus had the same human mother as they had. Their names were James, Judas, although we know him more as Jude, typically, Uh, Joseph and Simon. We don't know a lot about these men. But we do know this. They grew up with an older brother who never once sinned against them or in front of them. And when they sinned against him, He did not retaliate. Y'all can't even imagine, can you? I have great sisters. I can't imagine. And they definitely can't imagine. 30 years. 
30 years of that being their knowledge of Christ. We don't know what Joseph and Mary shared or didn't share about Jesus with these boys. I was thinking about that this week as a parent. Would I tell them or would I not? I, I, I mean, talk about a way to set up a, a, a preferred child system, right? Well, your older brother's the son of God. But we like you kids too. You're okay. No, right? We don't know. We don't know. Maybe they did. Maybe they told him what the angel said. Maybe they didn't. But they've certainly heard Cousin John. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And they, if no one else in the world can say this, they know that he is pure and spotless, a Lamb of God who has never sinned. And yet, here, when people say, your brothers are looking for you, Jesus says, no, no, no. Unlike them, my brothers are those who hear my words and do them. So, so if any of us, if any of us wants to say, surely I'm an exception to the warning. Christ would never take from me. He took those titles from them. Isn't that shocking? Why does he do this? Our our text is a little vague. It seems like his family shows up to see him and he insults them. Uh, But we, we do know more than that. We know from Matthew and Mark that uh, they, they are concerned for him. And they came and were wanting him to come out so that they could secret him away to their home and cause him to stop his ministry at least for a while. Why would they do that? What, what factors are involved in this unbelief that Jesus rebukes here? I think at least two things. I, I think they're concerned for at least two things. First, they may be concerned for his health. In Mark chapter 3, we're shown Christ busy healing and preaching 24-7. He didn't even stop on the Sabbath day. 24-7, he is healing and he is preaching. And in fact, Mark goes out of his way to tell us in verse 20 that it was so packed where he was teaching that day that you couldn't even lift a loaf of bread to your mouth to eat. He's not exactly what a good mother would... would it's, not the, it's not the health habits, let's say, that a mother would typically desire for her son, even a 30-year-old. So there might be a concern for his health. Mark 3.21, their thought is, he's out of his mind. We have to do something. He's out of his mind. He's doing too much so that he's not thinking clearly. Concern for his health or concern for his life. Mark 3, 2 tells us that as Jesus healed, the leaders of Israel were looking for an opportunity to claim that he broke that fourth commandment, the Sabbath day, even though he didn't. Verse 22 of Mark 3 tells us that the leaders then adopted a weak strategy of claiming that Christ cast out demons because he's demon-possessed himself. A weak and pathetic argument, right? But imagine being the family of Christ. 
and seeing the leaders bringing things like this up publicly that could lead in his public execution. Not to mention potentially bad things coming back on your own head just by association. And this is emphasized even more in Mark 3, where we read that the people at this time are asking the question, could this be the son of David? And that's just winding the leaders up even more to hatred, isn't it? So concern for Christ's health, his life, probably a combination of the two. He's out of his mind. What do they mean by that? That he's just frantically doing too much and not thinking clearly? Or do they really think he's insane? And claiming to be a Messiah that he isn't. It probably is a combination of things, depending on which of them it is. But the reality is, at this point, they don't believe he's the Messiah. They aren't trusting in him to do the work the Father has given him to do. And they want to shut him up and hide him away. And in that context, Christ says to Mary and his brothers, you're not my family. They who hear my word and do it, they are my family. Now that should be comforting to you who hear the word and do it. What a privilege. What a blessing. But I think there's also a note of hope in this example implied for us. The note of hope in these very same family members. Because I suspect many of us realize that we don't shine as we ought. Two weeks ago, our brother Dan Brown challenged us. This is a paraphrase. This isn't his words. But perhaps to examine ourselves, whether we have all of our theological ducks in a row, but not our first love. That was the challenge he brought us from Christ challenging it in Revelation 2. And maybe as you heard that and you examined yourself, or as we thought about the soils last week or the light this week, you're thinking to yourself, I don't shine as I ought. No matter what my theological hearing is, my loving doing doesn't match up. Are we to be discouraged? No, I think there's a note of hope here in the text itself. That those who have failed to shine as they ought are not cast off forever. Even those perhaps who for a time have had things taken away from them, if they repent of their sins, might have those things restored in time by the grace of our loving Savior. What is that hope found here in the text? Well, for one, it's Mary. Mary, whom later Jesus will see as he dies on the cross. He'll look and he'll look to John the Apostle, his friend, and he'll say to John and to Mary, Behold your mother, your son. In other words, I haven't forgotten you, mother. My responsibility is to care for you. And here is the one who will do it on my behalf. But more importantly than that, because that doesn't necessarily say anything about Mary's spiritual state, does it? But the mere existence of Luke does. 
Remember Luke 1, he made it clear that he was not an eyewitness. So he was a reporter going out there and getting the eyewitness accounts so that he could write the book of Luke. And who are his witnesses? Well, one whom no one debates is Mary. She was undoubtedly, with all that, storing it up in her heart, the primary witness of the first 13 years of Jesus' life as recorded in the book of Luke. And possibly a major witness for the rest of it as well. She clearly was held in high regard within the early church, not as a teacher, not as a special authority, certainly not as divine, but as a sister who was highly regarded for her faith. Or we can look at the brothers. We don't know what happened to two of them necessarily, uh, but we do know from the New Testament about two of them. James, James, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, tells us that when Christ rose from the dead, he appeared to the apostles, and then he appeared to James before appearing to Paul. And the James spoken of there is almost certainly not the Apostle James who had already seen him with the other apostles. No, it's almost certainly the brother of our Lord, who then, according to the book of Acts, went on to be an important preacher in Jerusalem. The, we could say, the lead preacher of all the congregations that met in Jerusalem. Paul refers to him as a pillar of the church. And Acts 15 shows us he was the moderator of the first council of the church of Jesus Christ. But more importantly for our thoughts here this morning and for hope of restoration, we can reflect on the book he left us. An epistle in which James makes it very clear That hearing isn't enough. We must also do. Did he learn the lesson with which he was warned here in our passage today? Certainly, James makes that very clear. Calling on us for faith in Christ that is active. That is accompanied by works. Filled with the fruit of good works. A faith that does not simply... uh, appear as someone who looks in the mirror and sees his face and walks away and forgets what his own face looks like. But no, James says, and I think we read this last week with Peter in worship, that as one who looks in the mirror, sees his face and remembers his own image, so is one, James says, who hears the word and goes out and does the word. And that is what he calls on us to do. He clearly repented of his failure and being restored, he calls on us to live accordingly. Also, the brother Judas, the younger brother of Jesus and James. He isn't known by Judas after the gospel records his name. Uh, there are a number of Judases. It was a popular name. And most of them seem to suddenly change to the name Jude after the gospels. Because it, it's quite obvious, isn't it? There were also a lot of Jesuses. It was one of the most popular names. And most of them seem to have taken on other names after Jesus rose from the dead. It just makes sense. One is the reverence for our Savior as unique. 
The other is making sure we're not confused for someone else. Jesus' younger brother, Jude, also left us a letter. And little is known of him, but in his letter, he clearly calls on us to shine in a dark world from the gospel we have heard. In fact, he he says it like this. He calls on us to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. What is it to contend earnestly? It's to have that light and instead of hiding it, take it forth into battle. You cannot say that if you cover up a light, you're contending against the darkness. But Jude says it's not just a little trickle. You are to contend. You're to go to war with the darkness, with the faith which you have heard and received. He goes on, building yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some, that is some who are not upholding the faith, have compassion, making a distinction. But on others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Clearly, calling us not to be lazy with what we hear, but to be active in the work of the gospel and shining forth. You see, his own family could be rebuked. His own family can be restored. So can you. If you repent, hear the word, receive it, and bear good fruit for the glory of King Jesus. He speaks, he speaks, take heed how you hear. Let us.